0: Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 323 with Kimberly White. I think this episode is truly one for the ages. I think you'll love it because she just reframes everything in terms of how you are thinking about the people you're interacting with and what a difference that makes. So you'll learn one, what you miss when you see people as objects. Two, how seeing people as people turbocharges problem solving. And three, three key ways to change the way you perceive people. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep323. Now here's Kimberly's story. Kimberly White is the perpetually amused mother of some very theatrical children and the lucky wife of the funniest person she's ever known. Her nine months of research for The Shift included dozens of hours working alongside nursing home employees in offices, showers, vans, patient rooms, kitchens, and one very creepy basement. Kimberly earned a degree in philosophy studying under C. Terry Warner and has served as his longtime research assistant. She was editor for her department's undergraduate philosophy journal and copy editor for Epoch, a journal for the history of philosophy. She's also worked for the Arbiter Institute as a group instructor and as a first draft editor of the legendary Leadership and Self-Deception. Kimberly's family recently moved from Harlem to the village of Pawnee, Illinois, where they have gloried in Midwestern sunsets and accumulated pets at an alarming rate. Thanks to Kimberly for taking some time to chat. And thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Kimberly. Kimberly, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast.
1: Thank you, Pete. I am so glad to be with you.
0: Well, I think this is going to be a fascinating conversation on all sorts of levels. But first and foremost, I want to hear about your synesthesia. My wife also has it. Tell me how that works for you.
1: Oh, for me, it means that numbers and letters of the alphabet have colors in my mind and it's consistent over time. But I also have concepts. So like days of the week and places that I'm familiar with and certain holidays appear in my mind in color and also located in space around me, that they always appear whenever I think about the the concept or the letter or the number. And uh, it's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting. And the only thing about it that's proven to be a drawback in my life is that somehow, I don't know how these things develop, but it, I must have been young when I learned about East and West, because the color I have in my head for West is the same color I have in my head for right, as in the right side of my body. And so when I'm trying to, you know, get directions and people talking about east and west, I always confuse them because the color for west is the same as the color for right. When, of course, when you're reading a map, that should be on the left. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, I, but I've learned that if I'm getting east and west directions, I have to stop and write it down because my brain is going to confuse that. So there you go.
0: That is fascinating. And with my wife, numbers seem to have a color and a gender to them.
1: I've heard of that.
0: And as a result, they're so much more meaningful to her. And she's able to memorize numbers rapidly. Whereas I like rely on this old school technique of turn each of the numbers into a letter, turn those letters into a word, link those words. And so Uh I'm like thinking hard for like five minutes to memorize a sequence that she just like, has it in less than one minute.
1: Yeah, because it brings in more of the brain. Yeah, mine has not really proven to be helpful. Just just interesting.
0: Well, what's also interesting to me is you recently made a move to central Illinois, right?
1: Uh, yes.
0: And it's Pawnee, Illinois, not to be confused with Pawnee, Indiana, the fictitious home of Leslie Nope in Parks and Rec.
1: No, and that's what everybody asks me. And all <laughs> I can say, all I can say is, A, I wish... <laughs> and B, my Pawnee is much, much smaller. Now, what's crazy is we moved here from Manhattan.
0: That is crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we actually lived in Harlem and we were, it was the biggest city. It's all very cosmopolitan. You know, everybody's a doctor or an artist or an opera singer. And and then we and everybody has tiny little tiny places to live, but sort of big jobs and big dreams. And we moved out here to farm country and it's like being in a different country, but it's great. It's a great different country. We've been very, very happy here.
0: That's cool. And the, the motivation for the move was just to have like less distraction and, and to be able to do more riding?
1: Partially that and the money. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I love New York, but it is so expensive to live there. Rents just go up and up and up. And we just, we got priced out.
0: Hmm. I think beyond just like the sheer income versus outgo, it would just irritate me.
1: <laughs> you know, writing <Ryan laughs> checks
0: that large, you know, or paying this much for for a drink or for milk or whatever you're buying. Like, this is ridiculous. Grumble, uh, grumble. It's grumble. really
1: true. <laughs> I would be happy if I saw a gallon of milk for $5, I'd say, hooray, it's only $5. It was, and this was two years ago. I'm sure milk's seven dollars now. It really it did wear on you mm-hmm. after a while. But but there were lots of great things about the city too. You know, wonderful people. New Yorkers get a really bad rap and it's 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 mostly deserved. But <laughs> there are there are really, really good things about New Yorkers too. They're very um very loyal and you know I'm always telling people who who wanted to go visit, they always want advice from somebody who's lived there. And I tell them, do not be afraid to ask somebody on the street for directions. New Yorkers are really friendly that way. But don't stop in the middle of the street and block them from walking, then they'll be really mad.
0: Oh, right. Walking too slow. That's the don't walk too sin. slow. Don't do
1: that. <laughs> Just don't. Don't do it. Don't stop at the top of the subway stairs. Don't do that.
0: Oh, boy. Well, that's a lot of fun. So that's the backdrop. And then I'm going to go to more backdrop. So You have a good bit of experience collaborating with the Arbinger Institute. Can you orient those who are not yet familiar? What's this organization all about?
1: The Arbinger Institute is a management consulting company. Their philosophy and their their management consulting um, approach is based on the work of a philosopher named Terry Warner, who founded the company decades ago before I was involved with them. And their approach is to teach leaders and managers how how to the, see the people that they're responsible for and the people that they work with and the people who report to them as real people, not just as sort of cogs in the corporate machine. And they have found over the years that you can do a lot to, to improve productivity and avoid infighting and the sort of battles that develop between different departments and so on, just by um, taking this approach. And I worked with them. I worked with them in college and they're they have a very popular book called leadership and self-deception that was written about the time. And, and I was involved, I didn't write the book, but I looked at the first draft, edited it. I was involved with the first couple of drafts of that book. And, um, and it's still, still worth reading today. Your, Your listeners should check it out.
0: Oh, absolutely. It is worth reading. And I heard several guests cite this as one of their top, top books. It's like, I got to check this thing out. Yeah. And so I read it. I actually listened to the audio version. Oh.
1: Yeah. And so
0: I still hear that guy's voice in my head sometimes like, <laughs> you're in the box. How I begin to get out of the box? <laughs> and so it's really powerful stuff. And I was intrigued just because it's one of the few books that I know of that doesn't have an author listed as a person, but it's like the entire organization. And I was trying to figure out, this is a great book. Who should I get to talk about on the show? It's like, well, I don't know because yeah. there's not an author I can <laughs> snag. So you're sort of like behind the veil of mystery as yes. a, an editor. That's something special.
1: I know. Yes. So they're, it's very interesting. They did that On purpose, they were very considered about that. They have a a few other books out now, and usually they are written by, primarily written by one person in the company, but they all sort of collaborate together and work on it together. And they made the decision, and this is a very Arbinger thing to do, they made the decision to have all of their books be authored by the Institute and not by the individuals so that the credit for the ideas would be shared. So There wouldn't be one person, for example, who's doing all the podcasts. Mm Mm-hmm. So that was their point. And you'll notice you know, in my book that I've written, we had a same, the same sort of issue. It's primarily a profile of one company and they didn't want their name to be primary. They wanted the, the stories and the insights to be sort of more universal. And, and more important, they didn't want to feel uncomfortable offering the book to their competitors and other people in the same industry. They just wanted the ideas to stand for themselves. So that's why there's this you know that veil of mystery, as you call it, is to keep it to keep it even and keep the focus on the ideas and the work and make it as accessible for any one person as for anybody else.
0: That's cool and that's interesting, and it just really feels like it's real, you know, based upon true values. And I think it, yeah. it just makes it well. I guess from a marketing perspective, all the more intriguing. It's like I got to see what this is yeah. about,
1: right? But you can tell that they're really they're really living what they, they're really living what they preach. They. They have the kind of collaborative relationship that they teach other people how to have.
0: Mm -hmm. That's good. So you're telling me that the name of the organization is not the real name of the organization?
1: It is not. That just stands for healthcare group.
0: Okay. Got it. The mystery continues. Cool
1: such a mistake.
0: <laughs> well, so that's sort of the backstory then. Can you orient us a little bit? So we talked about the main principle or concept is people as people. Can you give us a little bit more a background on just sort of the conceptual piece? And then I want to hear yeah. how it came alive for HG. So I said the box yeah. a couple of times. Could you maybe unpack just a couple of those foundational concepts?
1: Yeah, let's clarify all this. You know, especially because the subtitle of my book is How Seeing People as People Changes Everything. And the question I get all the time is, uh, how else am I gonna see them? You know, <laughs> obviously they're people. So it does bear talking about. So the point isn't that that I that Arbinger or I or anybody thinks that anyone really doesn't know that people are people and thinks of them as subhuman or anything like that. That's not what we're talking about. But the point is this. When I am focused and kind of obsessed with my own interests in my goals and the things I'm trying to accomplish and my fears and my dreams, when that's the only thing that I'm caring about and thinking about, then the people around me only enter my thoughts insofar as they have an impact on the things I'm trying to accomplish. And I don't think about them beyond that. So if I'm trying to get a promotion at work, then my coworkers, I see, I only even see them as far as they impact that. So she might be a competitor, someone else who's trying to get that promotion. And that's all I see. This is a person I'm competing with. How do I drag her down? How do I make myself look good in comparison to her? And he might not be in the running for the promotion and he kind of likes me and maybe he'll say something good about me to the higher ups. And so I only see him insofar as I can use him for that purpose. Now. The reason we say that seeing people like that is like seeing them as objects is because it reduces them to functional.
0: Mm -hmm. A means to an end.
1: Yeah. So, you know, like objects, they come from the factory and they're supposed to perform something. If I've got a pen, it came from the factory. It only exists for me to be able to write with it. If I can write with it, then I'm happy with it. If my friend at work will praise me to the higher ups, then I'm happy with him. And I don't think any further about it. If my pen is broken, then I'm mad and I'm frustrated and maybe I'll throw it away. I might lick it, shake it, whatever, because it's just an object. What I don't do with a pen is think, I wonder what happened to make the pen feel bad. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, if I can talk it into providing ink. No, because it's not a person. It doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have thoughts. It's just an object. But I find myself treating other people that way too.
0: You lick them, you shake them.
1: Yeah, you lick them, you (laughs) shake them, try to get them to do it. And if they don't do what I want, then I'm just mad and I get rid of them. But the person who's a competitor for the promotion for me in the office, that is not, that's not why she exists. She doesn't exist to compete with me. She has her own life. She grew up somewhere. She has perspective. She has a culture she came from. She had hurts when she was young and triumphs and all of these things have made her the person she is. And she has her own goals and her own reasons. And And there are just thousands of things inside her mind and in her life, having her act the way she does and and bringing her to this point. But when I'm only thinking about myself, I don't see any of that in her. All I see is I want a promotion. She might get in my way, just like she was just a pen that wasn't producing ink. Mm -hmm. And when we see people as objects like that, the problem is, I mean, obviously, that's not fair to her. <laughs> she doesn't exist for me. He doesn't exist for me. It's just, it's not fair to people. They don't like that feeling of being seen like an object. And it's also false. When I see somebody, just a thin sliver of what they're doing to me, and that's all I care about them, I'm missing a lot. She might have a very good reason for wanting this promotion. She might Fit for the promotion than I am, or maybe not, but I don't know. As long as all I can see is she's a competitor, like an object competitor, I can't see anything else. And there are bound to be important things that I'm missing. And so that's why in the Arbinger materials, you'll find them talking about being in the box. Because when we see other people as though they were just objects, our perspective is so limited that it's like being locked in a box where we can only see a few things. I can only see the stuff that matters to my goals. I can't see anything else. And it's, it's a way of being blinkered. In my book, I talk about it as being kind of blind because we miss so many important and crucial things. And it leaves us unable to solve problems and build relationships when we're seeing others in that shallow object-like way.
0: You know, when you talk about being blinkered and blind, what this is reminding me of is some study that I think they looked at brain scans associated with people who are looking at pornography. Mm -hmm. And they saw what was sort of troubling there is that the sort of the same parts of the brain associated with using an object or a tool like a hammer or a saw or something were being activated Mm -hmm. and lit up sort of in that context when they were looking at images of people, which is really spooky that there's some sort of, you know, physical or biochemical stuff happening just inside of us that's there. And so blindness really does seem like an apt terminology because it's kind of like a physical dysfunction or, or disability.
1: Yes. There's just so much we miss, you know, and nobody has ever studied the Arbinger term specifically, but they have done studies and they've shown similar things when you're part of an in-group and there's an out-group that you have a conflict with, like racial groups or gang members from different mm. affiliations, that you find, again, the same thing. You find a different regions of the brain activated for the people that you're seeing as objects and as enemies than for the ones that are part of your in-group and that you care about. So, like I said, this this specifically hasn't been studied, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if it would show up in a brain scan because we do, we get so blinded and so blinkered when we are self-absorbed and not seeing the people around us as people.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, so I'm right with you there that it doesn't sound like a pleasant way to live and experience collaboration and interaction with people. So, but if that weren't enough for the hardcore achievers, you know, what are some of the results or performance impacts associated with making this mental shift?
1: Oh, gosh that's so crazy because i think it's easy to hear something like this and think mm, yeah but you know having to get to know people that takes time and i've got to earn money and i've got a deadline you know as though seeing people as people is going to take more time and it yields uncertain benefits but it is absolutely the opposite i have seen so many cases where seeing people as objects has led to all kinds of conflict and wasted time. So in my book, you know, it's primarily focused on the healthcare industry. And one thing that's very, very common in healthcare environments is, you know, the management, it being responsible management will sort of look at their budget and all the things that are going in and out and notice that they spend a lot on supplies, gloves and adult briefs and wipes and things like that. And And we'll say, hey, I think we're using too many. Let's try to restrict this a little bit and and try to save money on our supplies. So the problem is that the nurses and the nursing assistants who have to deal with the patients face to face one on one, that's a horrifying idea to them because what are they going to do? If somebody needs a change and they need their wound looked at or they need to be rolled over and the nurse has run out of gloves, you can't even touch a patient without gloves. And, and there's so many things they wouldn't be able to do. So the nurses become panicked. And the first thing they do, and this is so common, they'll sort of sneak the supplies out of the closet and go hide them around the hmm. patient rooms. They'll hide them in places so that each individual nurse knows that she has enough supplies for her patients. But they all do this because they've all been told we're cutting back on supplies. So then management comes and they look at it and they go, we're still overusing our supplies. And they yell at the nurses and they give them lectures and they have a big in-service meeting to talk about how important it is. and, And the nurses go, oh my gosh, and they hide some more stuff because they're afraid of losing their supplies and not being able to care for their patients. And this happens so frequently and things like this happen in every business you know as departments feud for resources and as you know reports uh, try to sneak things you know from their boss if they feel like budgets are being constrained this problem only arises because the management isn't trusting the nurses to be responsible with the supplies and the nurses aren't trusting the management to purchase the amount of supplies they truly need and so they're back and forth and everybody's upset and angry And you end up spending a lot of time and meetings and a lot of emotional energy trying to solve this supply problem that should be going toward your actual product, which is taking care of the patients, taking care of their rooms. And when you get leaders who are willing to back out of that conflict and say, we're on the same side here, let's work together to talk about things where we can save money How many supplies do you realistically need? I'll make sure you have them. Then you you don't have those problems. Like that that hoarding issue completely disappears when the people trust each other. Now, no nurse, no no janitor, nobody who's on the housekeeping staff, none of these people are going to trust leadership that doesn't value them. If I know that my boss basically just sees me as an object, I am not going to trust him. I am not going to trust her. I'm going to feel like those nurses and I'm going to feel like I need to hoard my resources and hoard my stuff. You can really see people as people. As a leader, you get so much more productivity, so much more cooperation, so much more openness from the people that you're working with because people can tell the difference. They know. They know when you're seeing them as an object. They know when you don't matter to them. And so you can save all kinds of energy and money, frankly, because you don't need to spend that much on supplies if everybody's being honest about where they're going. Mm
0: -hmm. Absolutely. And you talk about resources in different environments. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm aware of an employee who it's kind of challenging to type all day at a laptop. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this person wants to use speech software And they have speech software, but the laptop is underpowered in terms of RAM or hard drive space or whatever is necessary (laughs) to run the thing. And and making the request to get the computer you need to do the work is just like nightmarish in terms of Uh the policies and the standards. And the. it's just I mean, you could have me operating at sort of half power which is going to amount to 30 40 50k a year of lost productivity lost. Exactly. or you could pay 500 bucks to get me a ram and hard drive update and I'll be a happy camper.
1: Right. I'll be happy. I'll be pleased. I'll get my work done instead of griping about my, you know, computer. I think so many, especially business leaders and managers underestimate how much time is lost in complaining and in griping, and in just sort of being unhappy. So here's a little experiment for you. If you think about somebody that you don't like, somebody that's mm-hmm. irritating and drives you crazy, right? just think about how much time you've spent in your life just, just basically sitting and thinking about how annoying that person is or complaining to somebody else about how annoying they are and you know, calling your mom, oh, could I tell you what so-and-so did today? We actually spend a lot of time on that. Yeah. And not nearly as much you know, when we trust and value people, that doesn't take away from our work. We don't devote the same kind of energy to it. We tend to devote that kind of energy into working together. I was in a building, this is in my book too, where I met two nurses. Uh, They're both male and they were just so happy in their job. They were so happy where they worked. They were so happy with the way they were treated by management and they'd created this entire environment where all of the employees were supportive and helpful. And one of these guys actually had a second job in another facility that actually paid him more per hour, mm-hmm. but he wouldn't give up this job because it was so pleasant. He enjoyed it so much. I mean, talk about productivity increase, talk about engagement, talk about motivation We spend so much time and energy trying to get employees to feel engaged, to be motivated, to be committed, to reduce turnover, all of these things. People will stay where they're happy, where they feel valued, and where they know their feelings and their hopes and their dreams and their perspective matter, especially when they feel like they matter to the management.
0: That's powerful. Yes, I'm thinking of another instance in which (laughs) an employee shared all sorts of input on sort of like the process and the use of contractors and how they could do a better job executing, you know, a certain area of work. And then like one or two days later, they started up doing the exact same old process with the exact Uh. same problematic contractors through this person into a meeting and is observing this with not a word of acknowledgement about the exchange, you know, like, Hey, Um. I know what you said about the contractors and we're really working on that, but it's in a tight deadline right now. So we're going to have to go with who we got because, you know, we can't get someone else quick enough, you know, just like 20 seconds. <laughs> We'd be like, hey, I heard you.
1: <laughs> but here's the thing. And this is why, you know, the Arbinger approach and the stuff I talk about in, in my book, I think are so important. It's because that kind of thing, it's just being willing to take the time to explain what's going on, kind of arises naturally. When you really see the people around you as people, when you care about your coworkers, when you care about their feelings, you, 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 we would always make those clarifications. You would never just ignore them. You know that's how we treat the people that we care about. That's how we treat our friends. It's in this environment where we just see our coworkers as as objects, as other cogs in the machine. That that you end up kind of either feeling awkward about it or not knowing how to bring it up or, you know all these sort of things that that have that, that people end up doing that stops them from saying what they really should say those sorts of things arise in an environment where we see people as objects now when we care about people when we know them and this is one of the things that this company HG in the shift did so well is they trained their leaders not in some process that made Employees feel valued, not in some procedure that would make people think that they mattered, but they would literally tell them when a manager went into a new building, he was instructed, he or she was instructed for the first 30 days or thereabouts, they weren't allowed to do anything except get to know the staff and the people. They weren't allowed to change processes, they weren't allowed to make new plans, they weren't allowed to change their suppliers. They just spent all of their time getting to know people.
0: You know, it's so funny that like, I'm imagining myself as that manager. It was like, what uh-huh. an awesome month. This is just going to be fun. <laughs> I can just right? get to know people. I can not stress about lots of stuff. And it's almost like having an extended vacation, <laughs> like hanging out with cool people.
1: Although, although I'll tell you, they continually had a problem that these managers couldn't stand not to be solving problems. Because they're managers. They wanted to go in and fix problems. So they had to make it so that they would have to report on who they met that day and report on what they learned about people. And they'd also have to report on problems that they saw but didn't fix because otherwise they'd go around fixing problems, which is, I think, just sort of a manager thing. But they would do this. They would legitimately do this. Now, so 30 days later, I mean, just imagine if you worked for a bad company so a lot of the time there would be these bad healthcare facilities that were losing money and they failed health inspections and they were in, you know, they were not pleasant places to be in. And then HG would come in, buy the facility, bring in a new manager, and and turn them around. That's sort of that's how they grow, that's how they earn their money. Now, if somebody comes in, which is typical in the industry and in most industries, if a new boss comes in. And just says, you're doing this wrong and that wrong and this process is bad and this person is bad. I'm going to fire a bunch of people, bring in all my own guys, tell you guys that you're all doing it wrong. You know, the the employees that stay just feel so insulted Mm -hmm. by that. You know, you might as well come in and say everything you're doing is wrong. You're stupid because that's how it feels. We got a new boss and he hates everything I'm doing and he thinks everything I'm doing is wrong and he's firing my friends. And, you know, and it's really demoralizing. It's really, really difficult. It's hard enough to get a new boss, even if he's great. Mm -hmm. So they would send these people in and they'd spend 30 days just getting to know people. And at the end of 30 days, you've got a staff that isn't thinking He thinks I'm dumb. He hates me. He's got all these new processes. We tried that last year. We already know it didn't work. You know, they don't disdain him. They are fond of him and they know that he knows them. He can greet them by name because he spent all month getting to know people. He knows who has kids. He knows who works a second job. He knows who's going back to school to get a nursing degree. You know, you're in an environment like that where people know each other and you know the boss cares about your job. And, and Pete, when I say everybody, I mean everybody. The kitchen, the housekeeping staff, everybody. If you wash dishes in one of these facilities, the boss knows you. Mm-hmm. So 30 days later, the boss would say, and this is the second important piece to the um, the HG approach. The boss would gather all of his department heads and the leaders of the facility and ask them what they thought they needed to work on in the building. Right. Now, instead of this new guy coming in and telling them all the things they're doing wrong and giving them a new process, he's saying, What do you think we can do better? And you know what? They always know. The people who mm-hmm. are in this building, they know why it's not making money. They know why it's failed the health inspection. And they can feel perfectly free just to say, I think this, I think our billing is inefficient. I think this process is too slow. I think because they don't have to feel defensive about it because nobody's attacking them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find anybody who said there was a big problem that the leader had identified, that the staff didn't identify. They always get it. And then the leader too. So now he's a guy or she's a girl who not only knows everybody on her staff, top to bottom, but also she has proven to herself that they know what they're doing, that they know what the problems are, that they're smart about identifying problems and solutions. So when she goes forward as a boss over the next years, She's doing it with people that she trusts, that she values, that she knows, and people that she knows she can count on. And that kind of a work environment where the boss isn't pretending, doesn't have a initiative, doesn't have a binder that he's looking at to try to make you feel good, but where the boss genuinely, genuinely values you and can go into the kitchen and speak to the dishwasher by name and tell him he's doing a great job. I mean, the amount of dedication and hard work that these people put into their buildings is incredible. They work longer hours. They do more. They go out of their way. They do things that aren't in their job description. They cover for each other when they're on vacation. I mean, I saw a business behavior I would not have believed. And I saw it all the time because people want to be friendly. People want to be helpful when they feel safe, when they feel like they matter. And when they know that they're a real person to everyone around them, then, then they treat each other that way. It kind, of, it kind of spreads, you know, that it's not just you bring in one boss who's willing to make that 30-day effort to get to know people and, and treat them like they're intelligent and like their input is good input. You know? And then everybody else becomes more willing to treat their coworkers that way.
0: This beautiful picture that you're painting and it's inspiring and... Oh. It's a beautiful thing. And so this just sparks so many things. And when we talk about sort of efficiency, I mean, many things came up that one, people are willing to work at a lower wage. (laughs) They're just (laughs) feeling great about, you know, the environment around them. Two, you're coming up with all of these solutions. and, And I'm thinking about my management consulting days and one month of a manager's compensation is less than one month of Bain and company fees <laughs> Right,
1: <laughs> to
0: come up with a bunch of solutions. Right. And so in a way, it's massively efficient. If it's like, we're looking for, you know, leveraged approaches to getting solutions, we could hire the consultants or we could hire a manager who does nothing but get to know people for a month. And it sounds like odds are strong. You may come away with a bigger ROI on that month there than you would with a uh, consultants or other solution finding approach.
1: Yeah. HG is convinced that their financial success is, is largely due to this, this willingness to invest initially. Like I said, so many people want to come in, snap their fingers, make a bunch of changes in the first 30 days, you know, first hundred days. In fact, I, I met a woman, who had worked for a different company doing exactly that, going into facilities. She had a hundred days to turn them around and make them profitable. And she was a powerhouse. She was so fierce, you know, mm-hmm. and she did that and made a ton of money. Uh, but she heard about h H&E and their way of doing things and got hired on with them. And when I saw that she doesn't make as much money as she did as sort the of power to fix her. But the reason she made the switch was because she would go to these big meetings with the executives. At the previous company. And she had made them millions of dollars. She was so good. She'd made them tons of money. Not one of them knew her name. Not one of them. And over at HG, they all did. Even the executives made sure to get to know people and meet them. It's a top-down, all the way thing. And and there you go, right? She she was making tons of money, more money than than they could afford to pay her at this other company. She left and they got her skills because she would rather be in an environment where she was valued.
0: That's powerful. Well, what you're painting really does sound like a paradise, but you got a chapter called The Paradise Delusion. So yep. you know, what's the other side of this coin?
1: Oh my goodness. So yeah, we're talking here about all the good stuff. And it behooves me to say none of this means they didn't have problems at HG. Uh, they still had turnover. You just are always going to have turnover in healthcare. And they would still have you know, government restrictions coming. I mean, they dealt with things. So none of this means that you're not going to have problems, that you're never going to have different departments needing or wanting different things. It just means that when those things happen, when you have people who really value each other, they can work it out in a way you can't if everybody's just an object to each other, you, you beat heads. But as far as paradise delusion is concerned. So the thing is, very often when we are seeing people around us as objects and we're unhappy, And I would suggest that seeing the people around us as objects, we're invariably going to be unhappy because objects are so stifling. I found in my personal life as I went into HG and I engaged these people and saw these friendly, familial work environments where people cared about each other and so on, it made me feel so much worse about my home life, Mm. which was very unhappy at the time. Began to think, oh, I wish my husband would be like this person at this facility. I wish that my kids were as well behaved as these people at this facility. I wish that my, you know, neighbors and coworkers were as, as these people. I called it a paradise delusion because I became convinced that what I needed to become happy in my life was to be surrounded by people who were going to be kind. And I think that's not at all uncommon when we're unhappy, to feel like what I need is different people, different, nicer people who are going to value me again. And the, the reason that's a delusion is because for one thing, it's never, ever, ever, ever going to happen that there's anybody on earth who's completely surrounded by people who are always nice to him or her all of the time. Can't be done. We are human beings. Nobody's nice all the time. No group of people are ever all going to be nice all at the same time. It's, just, it's never going to happen. The second thing is, when I think that paradise means everyone is going to be kind to me, I'm only thinking about myself. I'm thinking about what I want. I'm thinking about how I wish my husband would treat me. But in all of that, and maybe he is doing things that are unkind, but in thinking that way, I'm not sparing any mental energy to wonder, what my husband wants, what does he want from a spouse? What would he like for me to be doing? Does he want a nicer spouse? See, that never crossed my mind. All I was thinking about was how I want other people around me to be different. I never thought about how they might want me to be different.
0: That's great, thank you. Well, so let's get zoomed in, shall we, in terms of an individual professional in the heat of battle, if you will, in their workplace. What are some of the real keys to making the shift?
1: Okay. First of all, you have to be present with people. You have to be around them, especially if you're a leader. You can't get to know people if they're, you know, always in their offices and you're always in your office. You have to get to know people and take effort. Usually that will mean asking questions. Uh, Where did you go to school? How do you like your job? Uh what are you interested in what do you do for your spare time you can ask questions of people and get to know them there's no way a person can be a real person for you if you don't know anything about them so you have to start there you have to start with finding out about them so that you know you know what's relevant and what what bothers them in their life in at hg you'll see this in the book they train their leaders to ask people what makes your job hard for you because it validates them in the fact that there are things that are going to be hard, but, it, but then as a leader, you know what the difficulties are. Instead of sitting back frustrated that people aren't getting things in on time, you can just find out. Why is it hard to get things in on time? And then you know, very often, you can do something about it. And this works in personal life too. Why do you always forget to bring the milk home <laughs> <You know? laughs> instead of just being mad and yelling at the person who isn't doing what they're asked? Why is that hard? you might find out there's something you can do about it. You might find out there's something you didn't know that was going on in the background. So asking questions is absolutely the first step. You get to know people and particularly find out if there's something that there's, that's irritating to you or something that's a problem from your perspective, find out for them why it's difficult. It's very, very humbling thing to do. The second thing is to pay attention. You can't fake caring about somebody. You can't fake that they're valuable to you. You can You can try and people will be through it's a waste of time. So don't bother. Ask the questions and pay attention. Watch people. Is this a cheerful person? Is this a grumpy person? See what's going on. And then if there's a change, you'll notice it. If there's a change, you'll see it. None of us want to be that person who, you know, watched their marriage. Ten years later, they suddenly woke up one day and said, oh my goodness, I... I never noticed how much she changed. I never noticed how much she had changed. We need to pay attention as we go and notice the changes as they happen. And the third thing I would say is to always be willing to consider whether I am the problem. Because I don't know what the problem is. You see, it's quite possible that it's me talking about the parents' delusion, you know, with our coworkers or spouses or neighbors, we can be very irritated by something that they're doing and and wish that they would change and wish that they would be better. But we can never solve these problems and improve these relationships until we're willing to recognize what we are doing that's irritating to them. So when I am willing and able to say, what am I doing that's a problem for you? That opens up the possibility of truly being able to fix these relationships that can't be fixed as long as the only problem I'm willing to recognize is the one that they're causing me. Excellent. Um,
0: well, there's just a lot of profundity here to sit with. I, I think I'll be listening to this episode multiple times and I recommend listeners do the same. Thank you. There's a few more pieces I want to get if we have some time. Absolutely. You say it's possible that our worst employees can actually be the best. How's that work?
1: <laughs> well, you no. Know, It goes back to the blindness we were talking about. When we see somebody as an object, we don't really know what they're capable of. Some of the time, my experience has shown that a person who's being a bad employee, acting out, who's resistant to instruction, you know, all these things that make an employee difficult to deal with, very often those are people who react very against being treated like an object. Very often these are people who are Oh, just very resistant to that feeling and can't that feeling. And then when they're treated well, when you begin to get to know them and understand them and see where they're coming from, there isn't anything wrong with them as an employee. Their devotion to the work is great. Their knowledge is great. Their skills are wonderful. They just were so troubled by being treated like an object. So this is a funny story in my book. The founders of HG, their company, it became a running joke for them when they would purchase a new facility and go in. They told me that invariably, invariably, the previous owners would tell them, well, watch out for so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so because and so and so <laughs> and so and so, they are such trouble. But they give them like five names. And he said, invariably, when they went in and started doing things this way, seeing people as people and started off by getting to know them and doing all that, Most of those people on the watch out for list turned into their best employees. We can't make judgments about people while we're seeing them as objects because there's no way of knowing how much of their behavior is just a reaction to the very fact that I'm seeing them as an object.
0: Yeah, that's powerful. I have to ask. Even yeah. though it feels a little a little too silly from the heavy, powerful stuff we've had. But oh. you've got a chapter that has poop <laughs> in the title. Yes. And I uh, I can't just walk away from that. What's the story here?
1: <laughs> it's the poop chapter. <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe my publisher let me do that. Well so I'll tell you why. And 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 it's silly, but it's also also profound, I think. Uh story is in the butt too, but I was in a facility early, early on at the very beginning of this research before I understood a lot of these things that we've been talking about. I I learned it from these people. But I was in this facility and I was talking to a nursing assistant who didn't speak very good English. I remember her so clearly. Now, nursing assistants are the ones who change beds. And, you know, for people who are incontinent, they change the, the briefs and they'll help people to the toilet. You know, and somebody who needs to be rolled over or helped out of bed, they do all that sort of very close in physical work. And I had developed a habit of asking everybody that I met what was the best part of their job and what was the worst part of their job. And so I was asking this woman, what's the worst part of your job? And she paused for a minute and she told me that the worst part was when her patients pass away, which was just astonishing to me. I didn't know that the people who worked in these places cared that deeply for one thing. But the second thing was, I knew what nursing assistants did. So I knew for a fact, we all know, that it's got to be like changing the diapers and doing the mm-hmm. poop and the diarrhea and stuff. That's got to be the worst part. So I asked her, like, like maybe she'd forgotten. <laughs> like, you know, what about, you know, the diapers and stuff? And she looked at me like I was crazy. And she said, no, no, that's for their dignity. And I realized that for me, poop was just this gross thing that I didn't want to touch and that made me not want to work in healthcare because you might have to see some of that stuff and that's yucky. But that's not what it was for her. Because the people that she cared for were real people to her, she didn't see it as yucky, gross poop. To her, it was, well, these people, their bodies are failing them. I can help keep them dignified if I assist them with the toilet, if I keep them clean, I'm making them clean and safe and happy. It wasn't remotely the worst part of the job to her because it was what real people, people that she cared for, it was what real people needed. So the point of that chapter and the point of talking about poop at all is just to show how different everything, everything about other people looks when we can see them as they really are. An object person, yes, their diapers are gross, but a real person with a life history, who chats with me about their kids and tells me stories of the past and maybe tells me jokes, like that person, if their body is aging and doesn't function for them, it's not the same thing at all. It becomes a sense of, I want to help clean them up, make sure they don't feel embarrassed. And it's even, even the feces is different when we see people as people.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. It's just so good.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Pete.
0: Could you share a little bit when you're in the midst of things? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that many of us want to, we aspire to care about people regularly. Mm -hmm. And then we get caught up in our own stuff. You know, we get defensive and such. Do you have any tactical tips for when you're in the moment, in the heat of it? What are some great ways that you can kind of quickly bring yourself back to a caring position?
1: Oh, my gosh. You're asking the wrong person. I am so bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I look, there's a chapter about this too. It, it was one of the most disappointing things, one of the hardest things, but it turned out to be wonderful. About about learning all this stuff and this shift and seeing people as people was that it turns out I'm still just kind of me. And I'm still just kind of a jerk. And I can still fight and I can still see people as objects. And I didn't just magically turn into a fairy princess you know, who scatters flowers around. (laughs) It was very disappointing. I thought I was going to be better. So I actually think the first thing to do is just to remember human beings have faults. The other people around us are going to have faults. We shouldn't condemn them for that. And neither should we condemn ourselves. You can always fix a situation later. You can always apologize. There's no sense in getting depressed when we find ourselves doing the jerky thing that we know we're prone to do. The second thing is when it's a relationship that's pivotal in your life, you know, a spouse or a coworker or something that's likely to come up a lot, then I would really, really recommend spending time. You know, we were talking before about the amount of time we spend griping about people that annoy us. Try to spend an equal amount of time or even any amount of time thinking about the person that annoys you the most and what in their life, what pains and sorrows and frustrations might be leading them to behave in the way that you find so difficult? Then you have that place to go to. In the moment where you find yourself frustrated, you've already thought about that person as a person. And instead of trying to generate that when you're already upset, which I can tell you I don't do very well, I don't think most of us do. But if I've already thought about it and already found a way to see that person as a person, and even please take in some steps to show them, steps of kindness, you know, to demonstrate the caring that I have. Then, when I find myself irritated, frustrated, grumpy, I have that mindset present to me. I can go there. I can remind myself, okay, take a deep breath. Remember that she, you know, just got over being ill and she takes the medication and he was really disappointed last week at his performance. No wonder he's stressed right now. You know, you can remind yourself of the things you know about the person that will make them seem human to you. We do not have to just fall back into that he's so annoying, she's such a brat kind of way of thinking. We have the power because we're we run our own minds. We have the power to remind ourselves of the things we know about the person that are real, that are true and that are human. And then, you know, if you can't do much in the moment, don't be afraid to apologize. People love to get apologies and, um, and an acknowledgement of what, of what I've done wrong. Nobody ever minds ever, ever, ever will mind hearing. I'm sorry. I messed that up. Thank you. You're quite welcome.
0: Well, tell me, Kimberly, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things?
1: Oh, we've had such a great conversation, Pete. I think we've covered everything. I just want to emphasize again, how much power we have over our own lives and our own relationships. The seeing people as people stuff, that's not like only for people who were born cheerful. It's not only for people who were born calm. That is a decision we get to make in every moment of our lives. Am I just going to sit back and think about myself and everybody around me gets to be an object? Or am I going to say, wait, what's he thinking? What's she thinking? It doesn't take Any skills doesn't take a degree. It doesn't take a particular upbringing. That is just a choice we get to make, and it's a choice that will change everything in our lives if we're willing to make it.
0: If you'd like to see even more people as people, try speaking their language literally. Learning a new language opens new doors of understanding, and it's easier than ever to do with Babbel. Babbel is the world's number one selling language learning app, and it has a super impressive four point six star rating from over 22,000 ratings. You can learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Russian, and more. You can learn through interactive dialogues, speech recognition, fun trainers, and quizzes. I've long wanted to learn how to speak Spanish and even bought some other software, but had some trouble finding the time to hunker down by the computer to use it consistently. With Babbel, I can do a 10 to 15 minute lesson on the phone anytime, anywhere. They even have an offline mode for when you're on the plane or the internet connection just isn't quite there. I love the clean, simple visuals and even those fun, rewarding sound effects that give me that tiny little sense of celebration and accomplishment each time I get something right. You can try Babbel for free by going to babbel.com or just downloading the free app from your app store. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com or download the app, babbel.com. Perfect. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
1: It was just so powerful to me. One of the founders of this company was talking to me about motivating employees. And he said that, that he's against uh, trying to motivate employees. He said this, leadership is like a fire. A good leader doesn't come in and blow on the flame and take credit. He sees the flame that's already there and clears away debris to let it grow. Beautiful, thank you. And how about a favorite book? The Remains of the Day. Do you, are you familiar with that one? I don't know a lot about
0: it, but I know the title. It's ringing a bell.
1: Yeah, and they made a movie of it. No, it is a story about a man who devoted his whole life and made tremendous and painful personal sacrifices thinking he was on the right side of history. And it turned out he was not and sort of had to confront that in his old age. I just am so moved by the human experience and just the disappointments we all have just because we're flawed human beings. You know, we don't have to have lived the perfect life. Humanity isn't about getting it right. It's just about being human.
0: Mm, Thank you. And how about a favorite habit?
1: I like to eat a chocolate smoothie (laughs) (laughs) in my bed and read with my door locked. And I will read anything. Mostly I read nonfiction. But the chocolate smoothie just puts that over the edge. I'm telling you, it's like ice cream without the guilt.
0: Oh, thank you. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with people when you share it?
1: You asked great questions and brought out all the good stuff. One thing that resonates a lot with people is this little tidbit. Before I started working on this book, I was headed for divorce. I was so unhappy. I thought um, this was going to be my way to make the money I needed to be independent and, and split. And now I am happily married. To the same man.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you.
1: In case you're wondering, does this really work? Yeah, it does, (laughs) actually. It really, really, really does. It's not just pie in the sky. It's not just, you know, quotable quotes. Life can be different. Life can be better than we tend to think. Man, humans are awesome. Ordinary people have so much capacity and so much greatness inside them. We're surrounded by it. We can produce it and we can see it in others. And it's just miraculous.
0: And if folks want to learn more, or get in touch, where would you point them?
1: Well, I would point them to my website, kimberlywhitebooks.com. That's books, plural. And my book, The Shift, How Seeing People as People Changes Everything, is available at all major booksellers. For leaders, I recommend 800-CEO-READ. And for everybody else, go to Amazon. You probably will anyway. Mm-hmm. And do
0: you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs?
1: Yes. If you want to be awesome at your job, Start by finding out where you're not awesome. If you're not willing to fail and fix them, you can never be awesome at your job. Find what it is, fix it. And somebody at work, they'll be able to tell you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for taking this time and sharing the goods. It's powerful stuff and I'm excited to see what transformations emerge from it. So please keep doing the great work that you're doing.
1: Thank you so much. It's been just delightful to be with you.
0: Kimberly's perspectives here were just so powerful and transformational just in terms of that constant reminder of, oh, wait, am I seeing this person as a means to an end or as a person who has, you know, needs and wants and desires, feelings much like I do and the difference that makes. And I was so encouraged to hear that the first month at HG, all the new managers did was get to know people. And then sure enough, tremendous things happened. So if you ever feel too busy to get to know your folks, there is a compelling proof point that one of the highest performing companies in that industry, their secret sauce is largely about just getting to know each other and seeing each other as people. So huge. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcript, or the links to items we've referenced, it's at at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F323. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. You'll hear from Adam Ghazali, who has done a world of thinking into cognition and thinking and distraction and focus